Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast, where we take a behind-the-scenes, intimate look at surgery from leaders in the field. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. This is Kevin Canary here. Today I'll be taking us through one of our first journal clubs. As many of you know, we have accepted applications for teams from multiple specialties to join Behind the Knife, as we are working to diversify our content and have a consistent schedule going forward. This will allow listeners to hear from leaders in education across the country and learn from case studies and journal clubs within their specialty. Last week, Patrick took us through a fantastic case study of a gunshot wound to the duodenum, so if you haven't heard that, please go back and listen to that. With the journal clubs, our goal is to review two to three relevant and practice-changing articles within the specialty. We want the episodes to be less than 35 minutes, and we want these to be conversational with a focus on how these studies impact your practice. And for every review, we're going to finish it with a a bottom line of kind of a take-home message from that study. So today, I am hoping to lay the groundwork for the journal club going forward, and I'm sure the teams joining Behind the Knife will take it to an even higher level in the future. Today, we are lucky enough to have Dr. David Kavar. He's a vascular surgeon at Brook Army Medical Center. He's the chair of the IRB and the associate program director for research. So today, we're going to break down two papers within vascular surgery. The first paper is on venous disease. It's the pharmacomechanical catheter-directed thrombolysis for deep venous thrombosis, also known as the ATTRACT trial published in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2017. And we're following that up with a retrospective database study uh, out of Penn called The Effects of Dual Antiplatelet Therapy on Graft Patency After Lower Extremity Bypass, uh, published by Dr. Belkin in the Journal for Vascular Surgery uh, in March 2021. After this episode, I expect that listeners will understand when it is beneficial to treat proximal symptomatic DVTs and understand how even the best prospective randomized trials have limitations and leave questions to be answered. With our second paper, we start out discussing how to interpret and anticipate the biases inherent in retrospective database studies as we're seeing more and more of these. And listeners will also understand the practice patterns of antiplatelet prescriptions following lower extremity bypasses and know what the best evidence is for prescribing these. Okay, so now let's dive into our New England Journal paper uh, looking at venous disease. So it's the pharmacomechanical catheter-directed thrombolysis for deep vein thrombosis, also known as the ATTRACT trial. This is done uh, by Dr. Vedantham. Uh, He's an interventional radiologist at the Washington University in St. Louis. This was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in December of 2017. So why do we choose this paper? Well, it's a vascular surgery slash IR paper in the New England Journal of Medicine. So something that we should all uh, be aware of um, if it's a surgery in the New England Journal. Um, It's also a very clean cut perspective, randomized controlled trial, which we all know is the highest level of evidence. And then But I also want to emphasize, you can see some of the limitations of even the best run trials. Uh, This study still can't answer all the questions to this disease process. Uh, Dave, what what do you think about this paper? Yeah, absolutely agree with everything you said, Kevin. Uh, Anytime I see a uh, paper that has anything to do with even peripherally vascular surgery uh, in the New England Journal, uh, I generally read it and absorb it. The New England Journal is the gold standard uh, editorial board for medical journals. 
And they like to publish things like this. And, and also, if you think back to the Crest trial, it was actually written by a neurologist. And so they, they publish these trials that have uh, meaning to multiple medical specialties. And so even if you're a vascular surgeon and you're like, I only read vascular surgery stuff, there's going to be ER doctors, there's going to be internists and hospitalists that are reading the Wing Journal. They're going to read this trial and you're going to start getting consults based on randomized controlled trials in the New England Journal, Journal of the American Medical Association, Lancet. Um, and so I find it very helpful to uh, really keep up, uh, particularly with those three journals. Uh, and, and this is just another example of one of these cross-specialty trials that's very, very well done, um, very concisely presented, uh, and I look forward to discussing it. Absolutely. So like we said, this is the ATTRACT trial. It's named the Acute Venous Thrombosis Thrombus Removal with Adjunctive Catheter-Directed Thrombolysis. So the background uh, of this is um, that despite the use of anticoagulant therapy, post-thrombotic syndrome develops within two years in approximately half of patients that have a lower extremity deep venous thrombosis. The post-thrombotic syndrome causes chronic limb pain and swelling and can progress to cause major disability, leg ulcers, and impaired quality of life. We have some small randomized trials that have suggested active removal of acute thrombus may preserve venous function and prevent post-thrombotic syndrome. So in this study, they uh, use pharmacomechanical thrombolysis to deliver uh, a fibrolytic drug, typically TPA, also known as alteplase, into the thrombus with concomitant thrombus aspiration or maceration. The objective is to diminish the thrombus burden and lower the rates of PTS. And by PTS, we mean post-thrombotic syndrome. And generally, it's thought that the valves get damaged from this clot sitting there uh, over time. And so maybe if we get rid of that clot, the valves won't have this permanent damage and, and they won't suffer this leg uh, sequela. So the methods, this is a phase three multi-centered randomized open label assessor blinded controlled clinical trial by the National Lung and Blood Institutes of the NIH. So the, the patient population for the study was uh, symptomatic patients with proximal deep venous thrombosis, which means femoral veins, the common femoral veins or iliac veins between the ages of 16 and 75 they excluded pregnant patients, or if you've had symptoms for longer than 14 days, or if you have a high bleeding risk, active cancer, or a DVT in the previous two years. And then uh, as the prospective trial does, it was randomized one-to-one. -one. You either get pharmacomechanical thrombolysis, or you get the control group, no intervention. Both groups, important to note, got anticoagulation therapy, generally warfarin, and knee-high compression socks, 30 to 40 millimeters of mercury. Um, and so when you're looking directly at the treatment group, so the group that got the thrombolysis, they had two different groups. And, and this is kind of as we're vascular surgeons here, many of us, I wanted to just highlight this real quick for the treatment group. If the popliteal vein or the IVC was involved, then they would do an infusion first strategy through a multi-side hold catheter um, and, and drip them overnight through generally a McNamara catheter. But um, for the remaining patients, that didn't have that extensive of DVT, they would do a single session thrombus removal with either the angiojet or the trellis devices. And then if residual thrombus uh, at the end of this attempted single session, then they would drip them overnight. Um, and then they would bring them back and do the balloon aspiration, their balloon maceration, their catheter aspiration or device thrombectomy. Um, and they encourage stenting for lesions greater than 50%. So you have your two groups, you have your, uh, group getting anticoagulation and knee high compression stockings and you have a treatment group. If it's really extensive, they dripped them overnight, then did their thrombectomies. If it was not as extensive, they tried to do it in one setting. 
So the trial outcomes were looked at at 10 days, 30 days, 6, 12, 18, and 24 months. And uh, the personnel that were performing the assessments were unaware of the treatments assigned. Um, so the last sort of uh, methods here is what were the outcomes they're looking at? Primary outcome of post-thrombotic syndrome was defined by the Vialta score of five or higher or an ulcer in the leg. A Vialta score ranges from zero to 33 with higher scores indicating more severe post-thrombotic syndrome. And what the Vialta score is, is it they have 11 signs and symptoms of PTS, such as leg swelling, uh, erythema, things like that. And it rates them from one to three. And there's 11 different ones of these. And that is how they come up with the scoring for PTS. And they also use the Venus clinical severity score. Uh, to determine symptom severity, and they used uh, the SF36 and, and veins instruments to assess quality of life. Phew, it's a lot of stuff, but I think you guys get the idea of, of, of what this study is looking at. And this is one of the advantages of, of these trials. Uh, you know, the NIH sponsored this. They're very clear about that. Um, they probably got a lot of money to do this trial. And so, you know, this is where all your secondary analyses come in, like get the quality of life, like get all that data out of it, because sometimes that stuff turns out to be more important. You know, the patient doesn't care if they have post-thrombotic syndrome, if they don't, you know, they don't know that they have it. So they gathered all this data, which I think is really great. Definitely. Definitely. So they're able to randomize 629 patients in the study. Um, and after two years, 47% of the patients in the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis group and 48% of the control group developed post-thrombotic syndrome. So essentially equal. And this is interesting because this fits almost exactly with the known data that 50% of people will develop post-thrombotic syndrome. Um, the moderate to severe post-thrombotic syndrome described as a Vialta score greater than 10 occurred in 18% of the patients in the pharmacomechanical group and 24% in the control group. So the mean Vialta score was significantly lower in the pharmacomechanical group um, than the control group at all visits. And one of the things to think about as you uh, look at the way that they score this is, you know, you're like p-value of 0 0.04. Uh, wow. I mean, that's statistically significant because it's less than 0 0.05. But when you think about that 18%, there's a 6% absolute risk reduction for a mean PTS score greater than 10 uh, based on the treatment that was provided in this trial. But what they don't, what they don't uh, report, and I'm surprised because the most papers in the New England Journal uh, would require this, is what the number needed to treat is, which is a true measure of the effect size. And I haven't run the numbers, but I'm just, just looking at it. It's in the hundreds. So to get that 6% benefit, you know, you've got to treat a couple of hundred patients to get 6% of them to have this particular statistical benefit. So it's just something to think about as you read these trials that have positive results. You got to think about that, uh, you know, what it actually means. Absolutely. And so that 6% he's referring to is that the moderate to severe PTS uh, had occurred more often in the uh, control group than the pharmacomechanical group. Um, and interestingly, there's no difference in the quality of life measures between the two groups. Um, they did see more major bleeding in the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis group, which isn't surprising. They had six patients versus one patient. Um, and interestingly, the risk of recurrent DVT was not statistically different between the two groups. Um, but I do want to mention, and this is another, this is, and the only reason it's not statistically different is it didn't happen very often. Thank goodness. Right. Um, but you're talking about, again, there's a 4% risk uh, addition or 33% relative risk addition by doing this uh, thrombolysis procedure. 
So the risk of DVT, so the, the risk of recurrence was higher in the treatment group, in the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis group, than it was in the control group. And it was greater by 33% uh, relatively, or 4% absolutely. And so, you know, my question is, in, you know, obviously I don't think the uh, thrombectomy itself or the, or the use of lytics in the venous system itself is causing that, but then you got to dive further into the numbers and you see, wow, almost 30% of the patients in the pharmacomechanical thrombolysis group ended up having their veins stented. And those of us that have been doing vascular surgery for a while know what the long-term patency of a stent in the venous system is. It's just not perfect. Um, and it's not even really that good. And so is this really, be, is, did they cause some of these recurrent DVTs by putting stents in? And again, this trial was a few years ago. We didn't have as many, we didn't have any venous specific stents. So most of the stents that were put in were wall stents, which as you know, you probably know, are stainless steel, uh, very big, and probably not really that conducive to doing anything other than holding the walls of the vein apart, but they certainly don't promote patency. So again, there's the second order stuff when I read a journal article that I'm, I'm really interested in, especially when it's, you know, it's reliable data, a really well done randomized trial like this. The other thing I'd like to mention about the, the primary outcome is on this uh, Vialta score. Um, the mean Vialta score was actually lower at every visit uh, between in, in the, uh, so, so less, uh, let's say severe symptoms of post-thrombotic syndrome in the treatment group versus the control group at every point in time. However, never was it associated with an improved quality of life. And it was lower by only about one point on this 33 point scale uh, over, and th that gap narrowed over time. Um, the Vialta scale has a number of limitations that have been actually studied. Um, and th there's this concept when using instruments like the Vialta scale called a clin clinically meaningful difference. And uh, I would say they haven't actually done the study to define what a clinically meaningful difference in the Vialta scale is, but I'm pretty sure it's not one point out of 33. So despite the fact that they kind of sliced and diced this primary outcome of the Vialta score in a bunch of different ways to try to show uh, the real difference between these groups, all of this data says to me is there probably isn't that much of a difference between these groups' outcomes. Absolutely, Dave. And, and that's exactly why we bring you on the podcast, because you really are able to, to break this down and, and find things that many of us would miss. Um, so as we get a little further into the discussion, um, so in general, pharmacomechanical thrombolysis did not prevent PTS or improve the quality of life in all comers with proximal DVT in this randomized controlled trial. And as we kind of mentioned already, there was less severe PTS in the patients that underwent pharmacomechanical thrombolysis, but you know, a one point on the Vialta score is definitely uh, questionable if that's clinically different. Right. We um, call that the therapeutic margin. So, you know, the margin is how much additional therapeutic benefit are you going to get by doing your thing? And if your thing is pharmacomechanical thrombolysis and your outcome is uh, changing the Vialta score, you're not going to get much. Absolutely. And so I think this study highlights something that we already knew, but um, in, in a randomized controlled trial way that routine use of pharmacomechanical thrombolysis is not beneficial and occasionally harmful when evaluating all comers with proximal DVT. But as some critics of this trial point out, that the ATTRACT trial uh, offered everyone that came in with a proximal DVT this therapy, many of these patients who we traditionally would never have offered um, this in practice. So the question is, is did they offer 
too many of these kind of relatively small DVTs, this therapy that kind of watered down the results. Right. They don't have a measure of how symptomatic patients were uh, or subject research subjects were when they went into the trial. Um, they do mention in the discussion that they had to screen, uh, you know, they enrolled six, you know, almost 700 people, which is a lot, but they had to screen thousands to get those, uh, to get those, uh, which is one of the reasons why these trials are so difficult to get done and so costly. Um, and so, uh, you know, my comment about their outcomes is, you know, when they were, I was at a center when I was doing my fellowship and we were enrolling in the attract trial and yeah, I mean, you, you'd pull that card, call the data center and they'd be like, okay, you could do lytics in this patient. And you just look at them like, I don't really, think this is the right thing to do. Uh, not that you're going to hurt them, but that you're just not going to make them that much better. Um, and so what they didn't look at probably because again, it's a pretty fairly heterogeneous population. I mean, the mean age was in the sixties, uh, in both groups, um, they didn't examine very early clinical outcomes. So you see like the young, uh, healthy, uh, you know, person comes in, you know, maybe they're a triathlete or they're a runner. Kevin knows all about that. Um, and, uh, they got a DVT cause they took a plane flight or, or whatever it was, or, or maybe May Thurners, um, and they get a DVT and now they're like, gosh, my leg is swollen. I can't really exercise. I got to wear this compression sock. Uh, that's a person you can make a lot better. That therapeutic margin is probably a lot better. And it's not as, as in terms of re reducing their chance of post-thrombotic syndrome, it's about making them walk out of the hospital the next day without a swollen leg. So they didn't, they didn't report that or study that in this paper, but that's, I think the reason most of us are doing, uh, lytics and, and pharmacomechanical, uh, thrombectomy for acute DVTs these days. Absolutely. No, that's a great point. So I think the bottom line, uh, one of the takeaways of this study is that most DVTs do not require thrombolysis. We can consider percutaneous uh, directed thrombolysis on the patients that are young, active, and highly symptomatic, and generally with an acute iliofemoral DVT, despite anticoagulation therapy. And they also want them to obviously be relatively young, less than 65 with a, with a low bleeding risk. If you guys are interested in other studies looking at the same uh, patient population, the, the CAVENT trial is a, a study published in The Lancet. It's a smaller Norwegian study uh, that looks a very similar patient population. Our second paper is a retrospective analysis of a large database. Uh, Dave, we're seeing more and more of these retrospective database studies coming out as we're getting better at collecting this information. What biases should we anticipate when reading these studies and, and how do we apply information from these studies to our careers? Absolutely. That's a great question. Um, the first thing that you have to realize is that uh, sometimes the data in these registries is retrospectively entered uh, like a chart review. So that's true of the National Surgical Quality Improvement Project and the National Trauma Data Bank and a lot of other registries, including some institutional registries. It basically, they have a set of, you know, a database that they've got to fill out, but they're still basing what they put in that database on the stuff that the, the clinicians put in the chart. And so uh, sometimes this data is actually worse than a hand chart review. Uh, but the benefit is, like for VQI, you get tens of thousands of uh, subjects uh, that you can compare. Uh, 
So analyses of registry data serve three purposes. The first is to provide initial data to generate hypotheses or questions to be explored prospectively. However, the second reason is to provide real world data when a randomized controlled trial would be not feasible or impossible. And this happens a lot in the trauma world uh, where I do a lot of my research where you, know, you can't randomize a patient uh, you know, while they're laying unconscious in the street. Uh, so we do a lot of registry work to try to get at the answers to some questions. And then the third thing, and this is nicely, uh, nicely demonstrated by this paper, is these types of registries that have been going on for years give an idea of what current uh, or evolving real-world practice looks like. However, the primary bias with registry data is what we call reporting bias or recall bias, meaning the data is not may not accurately or completely reflect what actually happened to the patient. And again, that gets back to what I said. It's important to understand when you're using, let's say, NISQIP data, uh, how that data was actually uh, gleaned and put into the database. And then the last thing I'll say is something to watch out for in analyses of large data sets. And you'll see this especially in like the Medicare database or the nationwide inpatient sample, where they will often have you know, 100,000 cases in group A and 112,000 in group B. This brings in the possibility of what we call type one error. Don't be scared by my big statistical words. Um, that basically means that there's a large number of records being compared. And then no matter how small the difference between your two groups is, you're gonna get a really low p-value, like the one we love to see, less than 0. 0.0001. And in a lot of cases, this is a false positive. Now, you don't really have a true false positive in retrospective research, but what it means in retrospective research is that the difference between the groups is not clinically significant or potentially relevant. So like if you're studying a procedure, like let's say you're studying a, a carotid procedure and you look retrospectively in the Medicare database and 1 million patients had carotid with treatment X and 1 million and one had with treatment Y. And there was a uh, you know, 0.02% difference in the stroke rate between the two. Well, because you have such large numbers, the p-value is going to be very, very, very small. But you as a surgeon are going to have to operate on 500,000 patients before you get the benefit of that 0.01 or 0.02% difference in the stroke risk. So my recommendation is two. Number one, know the uh, origin and the quality of the data and of the registry that you're looking at the research from, understand how that information was put in there, uh, and that will help you think critically about the uh, analysis and the recommendations that come from the analysis. And number two, always look at the raw numbers and percentages rather than just the p-value and the direction of the change, uh, and see if you think that a difference that you see in the percentage of patients with outcome X or outcome Y is clinically significant to you in your practice. Great. Thanks, Dave, for breaking that down for us. So with that information in mind, let's dive into our second paper, the effects of dual antiplatelet therapy on patency after lower extremity bypass. This is by Dr. Belton from uh, Penn. Uh, this was just published in JVS March 2021. So why do we choose this paper? Well, it, it's a well-done database study that is able to examine the practices of surgeons and their post-operative management of a routine yet heterogeneous surgical procedure and examine the outcomes of these decisions. It's something we talk about after every one of these cases, and everyone sort of has their own practice with this. And so it's kind of looking back at the last 15 years of, of what surgeons have been doing and how it has uh, impacted their outcomes. So 
For the background, current guidelines recommend single antiplatelets for patients with symptomatic peripheral arterial disease undergoing surgical revascularization, both to promote bypass graft patency and to reduce the cardiovascular risk profile. Some research suggests an additional benefit of dual antiplatelet therapy, especially in prosthetic conduits, though societal guidelines remain vague and generally recommend consideration of single antiplatelet only after lower extremity revascularization. Much of the reference research is extrapolated from randomized trials performed for percutaneous coronary interventions or for patients primarily with cardiovascular disease rather than PAD. So before we dive too deeply into this, uh, there's a couple of terms that are really important to understand. So Dave, could you break us down the difference between primary patency, primary assisted patency, and secondary patency? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think this is really important as you read the vascular surgery literature, because uh, we throw these words around and you know the, the community of vascular surgeons decided to use these terms uh, 20 years ago in the first reporting standards paper. Um, and uh, it, I find it's one of those things that completely befuddles uh, junior trainees and my colleagues in other surgical specialties. So primary patency, uh, you've put a graft in, how long does it stay patent without any intervention? Your hope is that you have 100% primary patency for infinite amount of time. So we talk about all these things in terms of uh, spans of time. So days, weeks, months, years. So some, we, it had primary patency, meaning no other interventions other than diagnostic maneuvers for X amount of time. And then there's primary assisted patency. And this is kind of the, the bastard child. So I'm gonna skip over that one and go to secondary patency. So we have primary patency. How long did it stay open? You didn't have to touch it. Secondary patency. This is something that is maintained after it is completely thrombosed. So you put a graft in of any kind and it fails, completely thromboses, and you have to do something to open it up. That doesn't include redoing another bypass. It has to be an intervention on that same uh, graft. But if you have to intervene after it has completely thrombosed, that is when you start the secondary patency period. In between those two is this idea of primary assisted patency. So obviously you haven't reached secondary patency yet, so it hasn't completely thrombosed, but it is when an intervention is done, a non-diagnostic, a therapeutic intervention is done on a bypass to maintain its primary patency. So, and this can only happen if you're doing surveillance like we do on our bypass grafts, or if it's clinically, uh, there's clinical suspicion. Like if you do a dialysis access and the patient comes back from the dialysis center a year later and says they're getting high pressures on the machine. And then you do a fistulagram and you say, oh, there's a stenosis there. You balloon it to keep it open. Well, now it's gone from primary patency to, well, it needed a little help to stay open, primary assisted patient. So let's dive back into our paper now, uh, now that we have the kind of knowledge we need to understand it. So the objective of this paper was to explore the prescribing patterns of single antiplatelet therapy versus dual antiplatelet therapy after lower extremity bypass and to investigate the effects of antiplatelet therapy on bypass graft patency and major adverse limb events, also known as MALES. So the methods... This is a retrospective analysis of prospectively collected non-emergent infrainguinal lower extremity bypass operations in the National uh, Vascular Quality Initiative, also known as the VQI, from 2003 to 2018 with long-term follow-up performed. Uh, the patient's discharge on aspirin monotherapy or dual antiplatelet therapy were identified uh, in this study. And so the 
They did a linear regression, investigated temporal trends and antiplatelet use, and they used the multivariable Cox regression and investigated predictors of primary, primary assisted and secondary patency. Okay, so the results. Uh, they found 13,000 patients that either were discharged on aspirin alone or dual antiplatelet therapy. 52% were discharged on aspirin monotherapy alone, and 47.8% were discharged on dual antiplatelet therapy. Notably, the dual antiplatelet therapy increased from 10% to 60% in 2018. I find this absolutely fascinating because that is a huge jump somewhere along the line in that, what is it, 2003? So in 15 years, we managed to convince 50% of surgeons or, or change our practice in 50% of the uh, operations that we're doing. And I mean, it's just, that's absolutely fascinating, especially when we get to talking about what the actual randomized data was during that time that didn't necessarily support that change. Are we operating on sicker patients as time goes on? And so they were on dual LNI platelet. They had their clopidogrel uh, beforehand and were continuing it afterwards. Or did we actually change our practice based on, like I said, potentially no data? Um, or the other thing is at some point during this, and this is where it's important to understand the context of the data that you're, uh, that you're absorbing from a journal article. <clears throat> at some point during 2003 and 2018, the vascular uh, study group of Northern New England, the VSGNNE, became the VQI and it became, it went from a small, like four hospital and then 11 hospital, all in Northern New England uh, <clears throat> data set to incorporating, you know, a hundred vascular centers around the country. So maybe we just got better at reporting uh, dual antiplatelet. So again, just the next level of things to think about as you read into these numbers. Yeah, very interesting. And so, as you kind of alluded to, the dual antiplatelet group was younger, but there were more complex medical and atherosclerotic disease patterns. They had higher risk bypass procedures, either more distal targets or prosthetic conduit. Um, and then after adjusting for these preoperative demographic and intraoperative technical factors, analysis did not show any difference between the dual antiplatelet and aspirin cohorts in the primary patency, primary assisted patency, or secondary patency. But on subgroup analysis, based on bypass conduit, dual antiplatelet therapy was found to have a protective effect on patency only in the prosthetic bypass cohort. So one trial I just want to mention here is called the CASPER trial. It's a randomized controlled trial comparing the aspirin versus dual antiplatelet. Also did not show a difference or, or a benefit in dual antiplatelet therapy for improving patency, but they also showed that... Uh, there was a benefit when using prosthetic grafts below the knee. So there was not a difference in perioperative bleeding rates, but long-term bleeding risk is unable to be evaluated in VQI as it's not one of the data points that's collected. So as in uh, many of these studies, uh, or all of these studies, it's a retrospective study. So some of the limitations are there's a lack of granular detail on the length of antiplatelet therapy and unable to get some of the info on the long-term bleeding risks. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, and again, so the second order stuff, uh, they do mention in the article that dual antiplatelet therapy was continuation therapy in most of the patients. So it's not like anybody made the decision. I mean, you can see these were sicker patients to start off with by their comorbidities and their, their uh, worse uh, peripheral vascular disease. Um, so the, the Plavix, or excuse me, the, the second antiplatelet agent, it may not even have been a choice for graft preservation to preserve primary patency. They may just have said, well, you're going to start your home meds again. And one of those home meds is clopidogrel along with your aspirin. So you're going to do that. 
Um, so in that sense, uh, in this retrospective study, and this is a limitation of retrospective research, the authors were looking for a second order patency effect uh, of this drug, which may or may not be confounded by multiple other variables that not even a uh, multivariable Cox regression can, uh, can uh, suss out. For instance, my big thing is runoff. So if runoff scores are not in VQI, at least they're not reported in this study. And to me, that's the most important thing. Like that sets up, you know, poor runoff sets up a situation of stasis and my mortal enemy, Rudolf Verkow, is going to come in and cause my graphic thrombos because the runoff is poor. So we'll get to later, like the patients that I send home on uh, a intensification of their anticoagulation therapy. Uh, and that's a variable that may be a huge confounder here, especially because the dual antiplatelet group likely had worse runoff because they had more advanced vascular disease. Um, and maybe the clopidogrel did help. Um, they also excluded patients that were on full anticoagulation at discharge. But again, your dual antiplatelet group was sicker and you're following them for years. How many of those patients ended up on anticoagulation because they developed AFib or a DVT at some point? We just don't know. Yeah, no, there's definitely some limitations there, but in, those are some great points. Um, so Dave, does this article change your practice or should it change the practice of someone who's routinely prescribing dual antiplatelet therapy for below the knee bypasses with autogenous vein? It's hard to tell anybody that a paper like this, even though, you know, there's 13,000 uh, records in the VQI that they were able to uh, analyze, it's hard to tell anybody based on this kind of data that they should change their practice. My practice in a standard risk graft, uh, risk for loss of primary patency, which is autogenous conduit above the knee or to the, a, a good quality below knee popliteal with good outflow, they get back on their preoperative antiplatelet regimen. And again, a certain percentage of those patients may be on dual antiplatelet because they have coronary stents or for some other reason, and that's fine. For high-risk grafts, prosthetic below the knee, spliced conduit below the knee, or anybody with you know, single vessel or, or compromised outflow, uh, I consider full anticoagulation based on uh, some prospective research that was done uh, a couple of decades ago. Um, I, I generally, between CASPAR trial and, and, and this and other analyses, I don't see the evidence for dual antiplatelet for preservation of primary patency. But given the results of CASPAR and confirmed by this trial, I might consider it for a prosthetic uh, graft to a uh, less than perfect above knee popliteal target. You know, that, that pop that looks really good on the duplex or the CTA and you get in there and there's some disease and you have to do a focal end arterectomy. Uh, I can see how uh, I might do dual antiplatelet for that patient. However, Absolutely. once something thromboses, uh, all bets are off. Uh, and so unless you can find a clear anatomic culprit for that loss of primary patency uh, or, or for, that, uh, for that thrombosis uh, you, that you can fix, you've got to do something, uh, either intensifying their antiplatelet or anticoagulation regimen to keep that, uh, to keep that graft open. Definitely. Yeah. And so that fits uh, with the bottom line uh, that we came up with from this paper. The VQI database does not support improved patency of bypass grafts with dual antiplatelet therapy unless it's a prosthetic graft. Okay. Well, that wraps up this journal club. Dave, we really appreciate you coming on and helping us uh, understand and break down these articles. We hope to have you back soon. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you. Until next time, dominate the day.